Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode I'm calling The Vulnerable Throne. It covers four films, The Bitter Tea of General Yen, Knights of the Round Table, Land of the Fowers, and Rasputin and the Empress. And it leads off from the previous month's entry, The Shanghai Gesture, which, like Bitter Tea of General Yen, also took place in uh, pre-World War II China. And uh, in this case, uh, this these four films are uh, linked together by stories about royalty that falls, uh, usually due to some sort of romance or sexual intrigue, although not in all of the cases. So Bitter Tea of General Yen is a longer review, about seven or eight minutes. The others are very short. They are um, really, you know, brief reflections. Uh, After watching the film, I had a few thoughts they don't say too much about the movie, but I included them here because they're thematically linked to Bitter Tea of General Yen. And uh, I also wanted to recommend there's a Twitter, a few Twitter threads on the Bitter Tea of General Yen and also on uh, the Knights of the Round Table. So if you want like more in-depth kind of background on the films and stuff, I'll link those below. Definitely check them out. But uh, other than Bitter Tea, which is a little more extended of a of a reflection, the others are quite short. And at the end of Rasputin, and the Empress, I actually end up talking for about a minute and a half about this other bizarre Romanov film. So there's a little aside there. Before we get to the main episode, here is what I've been up to uh, elsewhere. On my Twin Peaks Cinema podcast feed, I released episode number 18, Back to the Future Part 2, comparing that film to Twin Peaks. It's part of my Disordered Stories series uh, season that I just started on there where I'm talking about stories told uh, out of order and how that relates to uh, Twin Peaks. I've got a cross post on the site uh, describing that endeavor a little bit. And then on YouTube, I actually don't have anything yet since the previous uh, Lost in the Movies episode. Usually I have a Twin Peaks conversation go up at the end of the month, but this one got slightly delayed. It's with Colin from the Creamed Corn in the Universe podcast. It will be going up on YouTube soon, uh, probably within... 24 or 30 hours of this episode going up on a podcast feed, but just not in time for me to link it. So I'll discuss that more in the next episode when I look back at what I did in November. And uh, same thing with the $5 a month tier for Patreon. That's where I usually have the back part of that Twin Peaks conversation, but still forthcoming. On the dollar a month tier, I released episode 95 part two, second part of uh, what I released earlier in October. This is called the 90s in September and beyond plus 70s bonus. Pulp Fiction, and Clue. So full reviews of those two films, plus capsules on Exotica, Network, Superman, Magnolia, Saturday Night Fever, Thelma and Louise, Reality Bites, Boogie Nights, Nashville, Scream, Gremlins 2, Romeo and Juliet, Set It Off, The Firm, Pelican Brief, The Client, The Ice Storm, Dangerous Minds, and archive readings of The Conversation and Enemy of the State. I also published episode 96, Halloween special continuing the 90s, Bram Stoker's Dracula plus archive readings of Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman, feedback, media, work updates, including Cooper's identity, the professional managerial class, and more. For the Dollar Month patrons, my exclusive advance from the Twin Peaks character series that'll be coming up next year, in which I unveiled and and, uh, shared the full entries for patrons uh, number 70s, number 68, and number 67 on that list. Now then, let's move on to the theme of the Vulnerable Throne. And uh, if you have any thoughts on any of these films... Uh, please write in. I'm always happy to have uh, feedback that I can read later on upcoming episodes for any of this. Oh, hello, Doc. How's the missionary racket? Say, 
I heard you were thinking getting married tonight. Yes, I postponed it to come here. What? You mean to say that you left the prospect of a beautiful woman's loving arms? For some nameless brats? Certainly hope she never finds that out. Please, please write that past, General. Able to read Chinese yet, Dr. Not yet, General. I watched The Bitter Tea of General Yen. This was recorded, I think, a year ago off Turner Classic Movies. I finally got to it now, and it was kind of captivating. I watched it late at night, starting at like 11.50, and I thought I was pretty tired that day. I thought, I'm just going to watch this till I fall asleep or till I have to stop it. And I almost stopped it several times, and I couldn't quite. I just got hooked back in. So Barbara Stanwyck plays a missionary in China in like the 1920s or 30s. Uh, it's a civil war, but it seems to be a civil war between warlords more than like it's not the communists yet. They never mention communism in the film. It's just these different warlords. And General Yen is one of them. He's a very cold, philosophical figure who has this, I don't know if you could describe it as Nietzschean exactly, but certainly a very cynical view of human nature and what needs to be done to maintain power. And he is deeply attracted to this missionary who falls under his care and then control and wants to seduce her, but does not want to just rape her or something. He wants her to come to him of her own accord. And yet he does all these manipulative things that would seem to force her hand in some way. And most notably, there's a character, a young woman, who works for him, who's his servant. Well, actually doesn't work for him. She's his slave, I believe, and a concubine. And she seems to be betraying him. And Barbara Stanwyck believes that she's innocent, that she had no ill intent, and that he should give her another chance and not execute her, so she exchanges her life for this woman's. And then the way it all plays out in the end is uh, he's trying to prove to her that her Christian charity and piety is all a charade. She doesn't actually deeply believe it, and his worldview is the dominant one. And the way that the final scene plays out between them, where she shows up, I mean, Barbara Stanwyck, just incredible in this film. The costumes and the makeup, and she's just got such a presence in these early pre-code films. And this is a pre-production code film. This is one of the most risque uh, early 30s films I've seen, where it's just the sadomasochist game being played between these two characters. And she walks in with this kind of black eyeshadow on, uh, kind of trembling, and it's just this like powerful, palpable moment right as the general is contemplating suicide because his interest in her led him to a massive uh, crisis. And there's this other character throughout, great character. Uh, let me see if I can pull up the actor who played him. It was uh, Wallace something or other. Well, I'll come back to that. But basically, uh, Walter Connolly, that's it. He's this all-American businessman, kind of talks, you know, smoking his cigar and whatever. And he's in China, in this foreign land, trying to just extract finances and resources from uh, this warlord's territory and uh, trying to make him into a big figure who, in his words, can be like the biggest thing in China or something. Like he's a PR agent building up a an actor or something like that. So many of these films, these like early, these 30s films in particular, I think of the one uh, the, with uh, Walter Houston as well from 1936, Dodsworth. They have these great visions of like the American businessman. They kind of get him on a level that I feel like films don't really get that character or that archetype anymore. That American, you know, maybe they're a small businessman, maybe they're a big businessman, but they're 
They're not amorphous corporation or even like a tycoon necessarily. They're just this successful Midwestern small town figure writ large, basically. So that character has an interesting dynamic here. But really, the dynamic is between the Barbara Stanwyck character and General Yen, who is played by Nils Astor. So, of course, this being an early 30s uh, Hollywood film, this is a white actor playing in Yellowface. All of the other actors in the film appear to be Asian. I know one of the major actresses is Japanese, so not even Chinese. That could be as offensive, I suppose, to a Chinese person as anything else. But the performance is quite good. It's a very dignified performance in a way where where he is kind of a villainous character and yet he's very sympathetic and it's a very morally ambiguous movie and perhaps the most shocking part of it is that it's directed by Frank Capra who is associated with this sentimental all-American optimistic uh, cinema. Now, of course, there's always a dark edge to his work. You see it in Meet John Doe. That's the film with Gary Cooper and again, Barbara Stanwyck, where a uh, right, far right newspaper columnist hires this homeless guy to be his stick figure stock populist to, to speak all of his talking points as sort of the ordinary American. And, and uh, you know, that's a very cynical look at politics. Even Mr. Smith Goes to Washington has a dark underpinning where it isn't presumed that Congress is the citadel of democracy. The character believes it, but he finds out it's just a totally corrupt institution and it may have an optimistic tinge that, hey, you can fight City Hall, or in this case, Congress, but it's starting from the point of a jaundiced view of it. This film kind of fits in with that. And of course, It's a Wonderful Life, very dark in parts. So Bitter Tea of General Yen fits in with that general pattern, but it lacks the same, uh, it, you know, it doesn't have like a tragic ending per se. It kind of does, actually. But it doesn't have a happy ending. The characters are broken, whether they live or die. They're all kind of broken. Their worldviews are shattered. Um, I love the look that uh, General Yen gives the character in the end. And it's like, who wins? Who wins this conflict? It's almost like they trade places between, you know, that he ends up with this idealized Christian compassion and she ends up with the cynical anyone will do anything viewpoint. It reminds me of the old joke about the astronaut and the psychiatrist, the astronaut, or the guy who thinks he's an astronaut and the psychiatrist, where uh, the guy goes in and he tells the shrink, listen, like, we're all on a spaceship. You don't know it, but it's this is real. Like, we're on the spaceship. It's not safe. You can't go outside. And he says, this is a delusion. If you take this pill, it'll cure you. And he says, well, I'll take it if you take it. He says, okay. So they both take it. And the shrink kind of emerges and realizes he's on a spaceship. He looks around and he sees the patient. And the patient says, wow, you were right this whole time. It is a doctor's office. Thanks, I'm cured. And he opens the door of the spaceship and gets sucked out into space. You know, this idea of of these two mutually exclusive realities, and yet they both exist to the point where the characters switch place, the ending of this film brought that to mind for me. And just also shimmering, gorgeous production design, costume cinematography. I mean, just glorious to watch in that sense. In the old days, I rode in search of a man and found him and became his friend. We fought side by side and endured all things together. And if at times we differed and fell out, Still, I will say that no two men living were greater friends. Then I met a woman. From that hour, I loved her. Her name is Guinevere. She's your queen. My friend was your king, and it pleased him to make me her champion. Guinevere, this knight is my banner, sword, and shield. Another film I watched around this time with Knights of the Round Table. This was fun uh, in several ways. First of all, it was a showpiece for Ava Gardner, who I think TCM was doing some sort of series on at this time because there were a bunch of her films. And it's the romance between her and Lancelot, of course, and King Arthur, the classic 
triangle that is uh, is always you know kind of the at the center of these retellings of this story. And it's funny because before they get to the point where she enters into it as Guinevere, the narrative is just like a collection of episodes of like, okay, well now he pulls the sword from the stone, and now he is uh, now they're forming the round table, and now this they're at Stonehenge and all of this stuff. And I found it. I mean, it was it wasn't the best sort of storytelling, but it was very charming in a way. Like it almost reminded me of like kids going outside with a camera, like, Oh, let's film this part of the sword in the stone story. Now let's film this and getting in like night costumes or something. Also, I mean, that general sense reminds me of uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where they're just kind of like, there's this aspect of like dress up and make believe and kind of take the piss out of it while you're doing it. This is a much more straightforward adaptation of the Knights of the Round Table, but just the fact that the first, I don't know, half hour of the film don't seem to have any real dramatic through line was was somehow charming in a way. Uh, the other actors in it that I, I should mention, I think Mel Farrar is uh, King Arthur and Robert Taylor is Lancelot. And uh, Ava Gardner just totally captivating this. This made me look her up or remind myself that she was married to Mickey Rooney, which I did a tweet about. I just get a kick out of it. Vashtar, the captive who held the key to the mystery of the ages. Santa, who traded a pharaoh's ransom for the love of a slave girl. Nellifer. The faithless hostage, whose beauty masked her sinful treachery. Hamar, who plotted time's strangest vengeance. And Khufu, the man who thought that he could conquer eternity. Land of the Pharaohs, which was kind of fun. This was a Howard Hawks film from the 50s, which is really like a, a kind of a soap opera, which is funny because it has Joan Collins from Dynasty, but a soap opera kind of approach to uh, Egyptian history, where the pharaoh falls in love with this woman who may not have his best interests at heart, and she kind of subverts the building of the pyramids in, in some way, and uh, maybe a, an agent of somebody else. And the funny thing about this film to me was as it starts out, you're not at all sympathetic to the pharaoh, like he's this tyrant abusing all of these slaves and stuff. And then by the end, they played by Jack Hawkins. Um, of course, this is all like British actors and stuff playing these like Egyptians as the norm. And uh, he, he, by the end of the film, they make you like rooting for the, how dare she betray the Pharaoh and all this. Like, wait a second. Like we, this guy was like the villain at the beginning of this movie. So I found that kind of funny, but sort of campy, sort of fun to watch. And there's definitely a Rage of the Lost Ark feel with a lot of the kind of the booby traps and stuff they set up inside these pyramids and the way that, you know, the whole plan is like, to bury himself and all of his slaves, including the architect who's building it, are supposed to be buried in there with him. And it's like they're building this knowing they're building their own tomb, so that was kind of compelling. But again, this is something I watched a while ago, so I don't have total recall of all the stuff that happened in there. Don't touch it! Why, you payment fool? Inside of a year, in less than a year... I will be Russia. You hear that? I... Rasputin and the Empress. This was fun. This was Lionel Barrymore as Rasputin. A very, very, very historically inaccurate uh, retelling of like the Romanov family and their relationship to Rasputin. Lionel Barrymore is always as fantastic. And, you know, this is... He, he sort of worms his way into the family and gets them all to... Uh, to, to, to fall under his spell. And it's funny too, because this is, it's, it's like several Barrymore's 
in the film. You have John, Ethel, and Lionel. I believe, who does John Barrymore play? I'm trying to remember, because it's not Prince Paul Shogodioff. I think he is like the mortal enemy of Rasputin. And when I first recorded this film, I thought that John and Ethel were like the Tsar and Tsarina. I'm like, wait, the brother and the sister were playing the uh like the husband and wife that's kind of weird but no it wasn't that she was the prince ralph morgan plays the czar so this was interesting to watch if you know anything about russian history because it's just so flagrantly reinventing it for its own purposes and very pro czarist you know it's directed by richard boleslavsky that's a surprise i i had remembered this as being directed by someone who was more well known as a a filmmaker I, i don't really know any of his films he was a polish filmmaker and then he came to hollywood and directed there barrymore's performance in this very enjoyably diabolical they make him out to be like the enemy of the royal family and they they want to get away from him but they can't and he's like trying to seduce their daughters and stuff or the way they have Rasputin dying I feel like they didn't even do it as good as it happened in or supposedly in reality as it's related uh, anecdotally they poisoned him then they shot him then they tried to drown him and there's some of that in the film but if I recall correctly this like they didn't even include all this stuff it's like no that's too outlandish for even our movie Rasputin always brings out the ridiculous in, in filmmakers I think there was a uh, documentary I put that in heavy air quotes with like full of recreations that they made for Netflix that I I found so hilarious the sequence that I recorded it and put it on Twitter. It was of the guy playing Rasputin. They all have these like British accents. It was almost like Guy Ritchie. It was like they were trying to do a knockoff of one of his films, like British gangsters, but it was like Rasputin and an Orthodox priest. I'm going to play the audio because I can't even imitate it. This is obviously nothing to do with Rasputin and the Empress, the Hollywood film that spurred this digression, but it's just so absurd to me that... uh, this was how they were delivering the material. You need to start treating me with fucking respect. Get the fuck off me! So just picture that, you know, as as an in close up of this guy punching the other priest or whatever. It just was handled so absurdly. I'll link the actual clip below as well. But it's funny when I put this up, it somehow got the attention of like a community, you know, like the sort of the trad cath, or I guess in this case probably more Russian Orthodox, but these like uber right wing Twitter clicks of like converts. They're usually like teens or early twenties who have decided that they are like Orthodox reactionaries who want to like overthrow democracy or whatever. And this got like their attention. They were all like, this is Hollywood is disgusting. Look what they're doing to our hero. Cause they consider Rasputin a saint, I guess a maligned figure who uh, let's just say that those folks should not see this movie either. That's it for this episode. Please rate review and subscribe on Apple podcasts. Next month, we will finish this season of Classic Hollywood, and we're going to finish it with another story of a vulnerable throne, actually. And uh, it will not only cap off this season and lead directly from this episode, where we have Rasputin uh, leading the Russian Empire to fall to a revolution. Next one will be Marie Antoinette falling to the French Revolution. And then come January, when I start my next season, uh, I'll do the modern version of Marie Antoinette, the one from the 2000s. But this one coming up is from the 30s. So before I play a little teaser from that, just a reminder, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also donate to uh, Lost in the Movies as a uh, monthly patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. You brutes! You cowards! Is this your liberty? You'll be punished for this, I promise you! (laughs) 